Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I am your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest, George Acevedo. George was the lead pastor at Grace Church in southwestern Florida, a multi-site congregation where he's been serving for 27 years, and he's begun a, a, a new career calling around coaching, writing, and speaking. George has already co-authored or authored seven books. We're going to speak about his latest book, Everybody Needs Some Cave Time, Meeting God in Dark Places. You're going to find this conversation powerful. You're going to get to see George's heart. George loves Jesus and his church. George was touched by the grace of God at 17, and he was never the same. He was rescued from a life of addictions, and his greatest delight has been connecting people to Jesus and the church. He's a family man. He and his wife, Cheryl, have children and grandchildren, Uh, and you're going to find this conversation profoundly helpful. I can also say that uh, George has won several awards uh, for his evangelistic work, and a big part of his ministry has been recovery ministry. And so as we talk about his latest book, Everybody Needs Some Cave Time, we'll also weave in and out about conversations about the power of 12 Steps, Recovery, Uh, We'll hear some of George's heart about next steps and about transitions in ministry. You're going to find this conversation helpful. I know I did personally, and I can't wait to share the interview with you. Now, before we jump directly to the interview, let me mention a few housekeeping items. If you enjoy this podcast, would you please share it with a friend? Consider subscribing and even leaving a review wherever you find it. And also, for those of you who may be interested in Centering Prayer, I do want to invite you to sign up for my Centering Prayer email list. I send out one or a maximum of two emails a month, usually just letting you know about the free virtual Centering Prayer gathering that I host with my friend Rich Lewis on the third Saturdays of most months. And I also try to put some tips in there about how you can deepen your own experience with Centering Prayer. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with me about coaching, find out more about my speaking or my books that I've written, you can check out my site, brianrussellphd.com. Let's jump into this conversation with George Acevedo. Hi, George. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being my guest today. It's good to be with you, Brian. Yeah, can you talk uh, a little bit or share some key moments in your spiritual journey that uh, have led you to this present time where you're, you're still serving as a pastor and coach and you have an author of this new book, uh, Everyone Needs Some Cave Time? Yeah, um, I, I think the, the most important part of my spiritual journey uh, most recently that I think um, speaks to the to the question is um, in uh, 2019, uh, I was uh, leading a spiritual retreat uh, of some clergy from the Florida Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church on a Wesley pilgrimage. And uh, whenever I've led that, I've led it four or five times over 20 years. Um, I always, uh, we always go to one of the two big Methodist churches in, in London, uh, Wesley Chapel or Methodist Central Hall uh, in the morning. And then in the evening, I try to drag them 
uh, over to Holy Trinity Brompton, the Church of Alpha Fame. And, um, and uh, while we were there, a young pastor who uh, I lovingly say I have shoes older than this guy, uh, stood up and gave a prophetic word about a, a pastor having some anxiety in his ministry. And I really felt a, a nudge from the Holy Spirit. Uh, George, that's you. And you need to ask that young man to pray for you. And through a series of almost comical kinds of things, three songs later, I made my way to uh, this young man, told him I was the pastor that the Lord had given him that word for. Uh, he gently placed his hand on my, my chest and he began to pray for me. And they were just healing balm. It was just a healing balm uh, over my soul. And, um, uh, he said, pastor in his beautiful British accent, I, I, I will butcher it if I try, Brian, right. he said, pastor, uh, um, I have a word, a wor another word for you from the Lord. And I said, man, you're one for one, bring it on, you know? And he said, um, the Lord is telling me that the next season of your life, now this is 2019, mm -hmm. the next season of your life, um, you're going to see a harvest of next generation leaders like you've never seen before. And it was like he was reading what the Spirit of God had been inscribing on my soul uh, in, in over a period of years. And then he stopped and he said, I have another word. And I said, okay. Wow. And he said, uh, and, and understand, Brian, this guy doesn't know me from Adam or Adam's house cat. Uh, he says, um, he said, uh, the Lord is telling me that you are supposed to write books on practical theology for ordinary people. And he doesn't know that, number one, I've written five or six books at the time. Um, he doesn't know that uh, in the spirit of Mr. Wesley, I love the idea of plain truth for plain people. Uh, I pastor a blue collar church I have for 27 years and have tried to take um, what we sometimes put in the realm of complexity, things like sanctification or the work of the spirit or centering prayer and bring it down to the level that a, a guy that works at the end of a hammer can understand. And uh, that's just been a part of my weekly uh, responsibility as a, as a teacher of God's word in, a, in the context that I've been invited to serve. And I, I'd been at Grace Church uh, about uh, a little less than 25 years at that time um, and was sensing a letting go of my assignment. Uh, 25 years in, in one or 27 now in one church is a really, really long time. Uh, and particularly in our system. And yet I didn't manipulate it. I just simply uh, checked a box every year that I wanted to stay and was invited to stay and really thought, Brian, I would stay uh, in that role as lead pastor for another three to five, maybe longer years, and then, um, and then slip into some, some form of retirement. Um, but that shifted everything. And uh, came home, a whole series of confirmations. Uh, and this August, uh, I will step away after 27 years. And uh, uh, one of my lifelong uh, ministry colleagues, uh, a spiritual Timothy of sorts, uh, will assume the lead pastor role. As a matter of fact, he is, has assumed that role. And uh, I'm kind of sitting in the second and third chair, just kind of helping us during this season of transition 
uh, with several sites. We have three campuses and several other kinds of uh, off-site ministries, fresh expressions of church ministries. So uh, I'll be stepping into a ministry of coaching uh, pastors, uh, thus the uh, next generation of leaders. Um, I'll be um, writing more books. I uh, uh, had a new one just come out uh, this past uh, January. And then I'll make myself available to speak at churches and conferences, seminaries. And I hope to even be uh, teaching a little bit in some seminaries. So, yeah. No, it's so exciting. Uh, I mean, it really is. I love uh, I love how you're stepping out and, uh, I mean, really in faith and these new pieces. Let me just ask two follow-up questions before we start talking about um, uh, your book. Sure. First thing that I really loved, and it's been a personal thing for me too. I grew up working class. I was really the first person to go to college in my family. And that used to, I used to think that put me somehow, I always didn't speak as well when I was around my really well-oiled friends and stuff. Even when I was going to graduate school, I had people in Ivy League and had the whole, all the way through. And here I was from the University of Akron. And, and I always felt kind of like less than, but then I, over the time I realized I can talk to normal people. And that's been kind of my thing and um i even get told sometimes i don't write academic books and i always write well thank you um because i just i try to i always give myself a translator so like what have you found um that's helped you I mean, again because you're not like watering it down you're just speaking people's language which i would call that incarnation like what's what's helped you to both speak really clearly so that you can reach the people that are in front of you, as well as, you know, when you're writing to have a, a style that brings the the deep things of God to into everybody's life. You know, I, I don't think that we have to assume that uh, uh, academic means difficult. <laughs> uh, and I don't think we have to assume that speaking to the common means simplistic. Um, simple is simple, not simplistic. Yes. And so, as a matter of fact, I would argue um, that it takes a little more uh, intellectual horsepower um, to make something simple. And if you can say it in a way that um, uh, communicates to the common person, uh, I, I think part of it is my dad was a uh, sergeant in the Air Force. My mother was an elementary school teacher. And so they were, they were hardworking, blue-collar, middle America folk. And, um, and so it's just always been a part of, uh, I, I thank a high school, uh, Mr. Atkinson, the high school grammar teacher who I hated with a passion, uh, but who taught me how to write. And he taught me how to write uh, very simply. So it's it, it it really um I, I think it takes a little bit more work i would i would argue to um chip away um to wordsmith again and again and again uh to to get to a, a space where folk can connect with connect with it so do you have any advice for aspiring writers i mean there's a lot of pastors that oh, i know writing books that listen i mean yeah. i mean just as even like with editing because i mean I, I like how you said that when you say chip away but do you, do you like try to go and I may be, again, I'm a professor, so I have to be asked these technical questions, yeah. but, but do you have like a word count? I mean, do you like try to write short sentences? Do you have anything that just, or do you just kind of go by feel and you just kind of figured it out? I'm just trying to back work your, your yeah. method a little bit that might help some others. But my most recent editor said that I'm guilty of a lot of orality. Uh, I, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Uh, I, I think 
we often read like we hear, mm-hmm. um, not like we think we want to hear. Um, and I believe in good grammar. My mother had a master's degree in grammar. And to this day, uh, if, if I use a double, double negative, I will get a phone call on Sunday afternoon from my mother. Uh, you know, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to short sell us on, uh, on that. Um, I would say for me, and, and I, we, I, we all write very differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, uh, the blinking cursor, it takes me a lot of time to get to the blinking cursor. Um, so I'll have books spread out and tabs and, and then it's almost like the muse hits me and I just type. And often, often I'm 80 to 90% there round one. Um, but I think it's because of the prep work on the front end. I'm not doing the research while I'm trying to do it. I I've done the research. I've tried to let it percolate for a little bit. Um, I've thought on it, uh, I've prayed on it, and then I sit down to the blinking cursor and, and start my writing. So, yeah. That's good. So uh, just one one more question on that. So you, you, when you write, sounds like you're kind of plan, do you, and you sort of have an outline, whether you write it out or not, yes. you're kind of filling it in versus just figuring out what you want to say on the fly. I think that's what I just heard you say. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I, I'm a, uh, my wife is a special needs teacher. I'm a concrete, sequential Kind of person, my favorite kind of professors uh, at Asbury were the ones who taught one A, you know, B, C, two A, B, C that I could easily take notes. Uh, the professors that were around the mulberry bush, I sometimes struggled with uh, kind of following where they were going. So I, I am concrete, sequential. Uh, I guess they call that left brain is up against right brain uh, a little more in my in the way I, I think about things. Um, and so logic matters to me, you know, it does matter to me, um, that, that the logic is good, that the scholarship is sound. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's been quite a journey and I'm still on it, Ryan. Mm-hmm. I'm I really very much still on it. So. No, thank you. I just, I love letting people under the hood a little bit. Cause I, like a lot of yeah. people want to write a book and you actually have, and it's, I love picking mm-hmm. authors, uh, brains. And yeah. so I, again, you just peaked uh, getting the whole thing about plain truth for plain folks. That's one of my favorite p- quotes from Wesley. And I always try to remember that. So just thanks for sharing a little bit about your, yeah. your method. So appreciate that. Yeah. Well, well, let's jump into your, um, your latest book. Um, everybody needs some cave time meeting God in dark places. Uh, Let's just start with the metaphor. I mean, you found this great metaphor, cave time. So, like, where do, where does that come from? Yeah. So, so one of the things, uh, one of the regimens that uh, that came to my life uh, in two thousand and two uh, was after I spent a week uh, in Hawaii, uh, mentoring or following behind uh, Dr. Wayne Cadero. Mm. a pastor of New Hope Christian Fellowship there, an amazing church planter, um, uh, brilliant mind, um, and a motivator, uh, just remarkable, uh, remarkable leader. And I had been invited uh, by Bishop Dick Wills uh, when he was at Christ Church. I was here. I'd been at Christ Church for four years. And so he invited me and Dale Locke, uh, my best friend, and Philip uh, Phil Routon, who's now retired, and uh, we went to Hawaii uh, to spend a week shadowing Wayne. And um, he asked us to go and spend 
uh, every morning at six o'clock at Starbucks with him. And he walked us through a way of reading uh, some of the Old and some of the New Testament every day and uh, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us. His contention is that the highest form of prayer is listening to God. And, um, and so um, uh, we would read from the Old and New Testament and invite the Holy Spirit to highlight something. And then we would write out what he calls SOAP, uh, Scripture observation, application, and prayer. And that just became a rhythm. I came home and taught it to our people as a fresh way of uh, daily Bible engagement. Um, the American Bible Society, as well as the reveal study of a decade or so ago, um, seemed to all indicate that the, the greatest indicator that we could find of a person's growth in Christ was their daily engagement with Scripture. Um, and their capacity to engage in a healthy way with uh, God's word. And so um, out of that regimen, uh, we read through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice. Out of that regimen over decades, and now this is something that doesn't happen in year one, two, three, four, five even. I just began to see this pattern of th these caves uh, being very real caves but we're also metaphorical in nature to our human experience. And these biblical, uh, these biblical characters uh, would be in these caves and um, they became opportunities, kairos moments, if you will, um, to uh, experience and find God and to be found by God. Uh, we changed the title. I, I like that we changed it to finding God because it, it a, it's, a, it's a reciprocating kind of thing. God finds us, we find God. Um, and, and so um, uh, it was birthed out of that. I, I, I have in my notepad my uh, uh, just sermon ideas, and I just kind of pitched this over in the corner, the idea of some caves. And then one uh, Lent, as our team was getting ready to lay out a Lenten series, uh, it happened to be that there were seven caves. Uh, and the last cave was the cave of Jesus, so the cave of the resurrection. Uh -huh. And so um, uh, we preached a series at all of our campuses uh, out of that. And, um, uh, it, and out of that, uh, it, it sat fallow for a number of years. Uh, and then um, I was asked to pitch a book. And this is a book I've been wanting to write. I knew that there was more meat on the bone. So I was able to use the skeleton of the sermon series uh, and then really, really uh, add to that uh, more research and uh, more writing. Um, and so the, the, the book was birthed out of that. Um, uh, we've clearly tried to frame it that it's not a Lenten book, mm -hmm. um, but that it could be used uh, in that way. Um, I have several friends across the country that are using it right now as a part of their Lenten series. They, they began a, a, a few days ago, so. No, I love the I love the, the the whole the whole frame and the in the in the caves uh, and you in for those who haven't picked up the book yet you have the chapters so you have different Bible character and then you essentially have you have anger fear depression temptation grief hopelessness and and resurrection uh, un, unpacking there so. Uh, Talk a little bit about, um, I mean, I, I mean, obviously you got that out of the biblical text, but how have you seen those seven 
realities in in your ministry that you've had and not not necessarily personally yeah yeah well uh that uh, what is it the old saying um that which is most personal is most universal i believe is a, an old saying um if you got the guts to face it at least right yeah yeah <laughs> so one of the things brian that you know i wasn't raised in the church and so i don't really know where the boundaries are <laughs> And so I've never really been afraid of sharing my stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's just made sense to me, you know, when you're a pagan and you're using drugs and alcohol and sex to tame the savage beast, and then you, you're ravished by the grace and mercy of God, uh, you bring this kind of rawness uh, to your life and ministry. My fear is that 40 plus years later, I've been church broke and tamed. But if you read the book, you'll see that, uh, say, for example, the very first story uh, the, in, the, in the book uh, is the story uh, that I tell about, uh, to illustrate, um, Samson in the Cave of Anger. And we know that he had a pretty bad anger problem, uh, you know, killing whole villages, uh, yeah. you know, guy, guy needed some therapy, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh but my opening story is about the um, about year 10 into our journey with our youngest son's addiction with opiates. And uh, he had stolen a whole bunch of money out of our family uh, savings account. And uh, I had my hand around his throat and my fist drawn back. And uh, it was really only the mercy of God that kept me from, from hitting him. And I tell in this book that just a few weeks earlier, I had been uh, given the Distinguished Evangelist of the United Methodist Church Award. And I thought in the book, how distinguished, how distinguished. Um, and every one of us knows whether it's as um, blatant as having the, your one hand around your son's throat with your fist drawn back, or whether it's wanting to do it in our, your head and your heart, and you just don't, but it's, or whether it's we use our words to communicate our anger, or whether it's we use our lack of presence uh, to communicate our rage. We all know that cave. We've all sat in it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so there's a commonness to our journey in all of these caves. David in the cave of fear, the cave of Adullam, probably my favorite cave, um, the cave of Adullam. You know, here he is with men who are in debt, discontented, you know, uh, and, and, you know, he's on the run. And how bad does it have to be? How bad does the fear have to be that you run back to the people of the giant that you just killed, that you think it's better to go to Gath, the people of Goliath, than it is to stay in Israel uh, with Saul. But that's how bad, the, and our fear will drive us to do remarkable things. And he does this little crazy man act. And from there, he goes to the cave. Um, and yet, I, I did not know this, that um, it's argued that from the caves of Adullam, he would look out over the very field where he had killed the giant. 
And that very often in our life, our greatest fears, if we'll look, we'll, we'll see that there's been a place where God met us in our fear, uh, you know. Um, but yesterday's miracle is not enough for today's challenge. And I think those kinds of principles just help people, Brian, because my experience has been that I am my worst critic. I'm my worst bully when I'm angry, mm -hmm. when I'm depressed, when I'm, uh, you know, when I'm hopeless. I'm my, you know, when I'm lost in grief, I, I can self-bully with the best of them. And, and so what I hope and pray that uh, the book will do, it'll help people journey into these caves. Um, for some, it'll be a preemptive kind of thing um, to kind of build some capacity for when the next time fear comes knocking at their door. Because again, you and I both know it's not an if, it's just a when. Uh, or it'll be a prescriptive thing. It'll be something I'm in the middle of right now. And this chapter is for me right now. Uh, I need some tools to find God uh, in these spaces. So um, the book is just my, my best attempt uh, at letting the text speak. Uh, that's a big, important part of how I how I understand scripture is let the text speak uh, and try to understand that. And out of the letting the text speak, it then it speaks to uh, our own lives. I try to do that out of my own personal uh, narrative and the narrative of the people that I've been privileged to pastor for almost three decades. No, and I, I always I, I appreciate being able to own stuff, and I think it's, it takes courage even to to write it. Um, I'm just I'm, uh, um, so you use. Because I think this, this would be really helpful because, I mean, even the way you just described um, the book and you have, a again, a really great way of telling stories and drawing truths out. And you also use, I, don't, I guess I would call it psychoanalytic language. They're talking about the shadow side of a person. So, um, but it's, how, how do you encourage people? Because, I mean, your book's very inviting, but at the same time, if it's inviting you to really take a look at your, you know, your inner working. Yeah, it's too. a primer. So, it's just a yeah, primer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I and I love that. And it's like, um, you know, I've been on a a journey, and I felt like I've, you know, I've looked on the inside quite a bit and saw both beautiful things and uh, scary things. Just to be, you know, be honest and uh, don't hide any of that stuff. But how does a person know? when they're ready to actually uh, go really deep into themselves? Does it take a crisis? Uh, like, you know, like yeah. you, you told your own story and I have my really difficult sure. divorce and recovery. I mean, like, or is there, a, or, or is there a way to preempt some of that? Cause you did use preemptive kind of in your language. Yeah. Yeah. Y you know, I, um, one of my mentors used to say life is iffy. It's got a big IF in the middle of it, L-I-F-E. Uh, I don't think we get to prescribe when we get ushered to these caves. And so it seems to me that there are, you know, C.S. Lewis famously said, uh, and I'm butchering the quote, I'm missing a whole sentence, but he basically said, you know, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and then there's something else that he, and he shouts to us in our pain. Mm. And, and so it seems to me that 
that you only do two things with pain. And it either drives you um, to discipline. And by discipline, I mean, you go see a therapist. You get on medication. You, you, you suck it up, buttercup, and you call a group of men and you say, can we start meeting together? You, um, you get a spiritual director. That was a new thing for me in 2019. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, all of that was just a gift that God uh, gave to me to prepare me for this season. Um, you, you join a covenant group. You, 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 you do whatever. You, you, you push away from the table and you start exercising more. You, um, I, 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 I believe the soul is... Uh, I'm, I'm a Dallas Willard, John Ortberg guy that the soul is what keeps us together. It's not the center of who we are. It's what holds us together. It holds these body packs and our minds and wills and our spirits together is what we call our soul. And, and, and so it's either the pain of discipline and paying attention. Uh, I, I believe it was Merton said that the, the essence of the spiritual life is paying attention. So we either pay attention, pain of discipline, or we're going to live with the pain of regret. And we will life will keep inviting us back to either the same caves or a host of other caves like it. And uh, it's the frustration. We see it so easily in others that we love. We don't quite see it so easily in ourselves. You know, we, we, we see those that we love that keep returning to their vomit, <laughs> to use yeah. Jesus' language, you know. And we smack ourselves in the head and go, why are they doing this? We love them deeply. We may even be signposting in a healthy way, trying to point them to places, and they just keep keep falling in the same holes in the, in the, in the sidewalk. And yet, uh, I've struggled with overreading my entire adult life. You know, and uh, having my left knee replaced wasn't enough. And so, you know, uh, and I'm not obese by any means, but uh, enough that the wellness of my soul is not all that it can be. Hmm. So by my choices and decisions, I have chosen the pain of regret uh, because I haven't chosen the pain of discipline. I am making some movement in these days. So praise God for that. So. Well, praise God. I mean, it's just good. Thank you even for sharing. I thought you said over reading for a second. I wasn't tracking with you. I'm like, oh, he said over No, no, eating, gotcha. eating, yeah, eating. Yeah, 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 I, gotcha. yeah. I gotcha. Too, I gotcha. Sorry about that. Too many Chick-fil-A waffle fries is what it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, you know, essentially the, the the way that you ordered the book was kind of, you know, in with Jesus with the resurrection, it makes complete sense. And you kind of kind of move through some Old Testament characters. Is Was that the sole order? Do you Did you struggle to put it in order? Like, just talk about the different um, pieces, that uh, different caves. No, I just wanted to kind of follow the, the, I wanted to kind of have some textual integrity and just let it start with Samson and Judges and then kind of make our movement uh, through through uh, David to Elijah, um, and then into the gospel narratives um, uh, in all of that. And uh, since then, I, I've, I found a few other caves that, who knows, maybe there'll be an, an appendix uh, added someday to the book if it, if it uh, 
if it does well. So no, I love it. I mean, that's why the I mean the metaphor is one of the beautiful things about a good book is you just have a great you, you picked a great metaphor because it's just like you, you read it like wow, that's that exactly that's so good. So yeah, it was just yeah, I was curious about the the ordering. I mean, I knew that it, it looked like it was canonical essentially, but it does give it an interesting read when you had the first one's anger. So let's just kind of jump to the end a little bit. Um, just to give a sense of, of of how you bring the the resurrection into it, like uh, what's the importance of having the cave of resurrection? Because that's the positive one, ultimately, sure. in, in, uh, in a yeah. sense. I mean, they all get turned, but there's that's where the gospel inter- impacts all of these things. Can you say a little bit about the cave of resurrection. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you know the, the the beauty of the of the resurrection narratives in all four of the gospels is the surprise. I mean, we know the end of the story because we're well-versed students, but they didn't. Uh, Theirs was all of the other caves. That's the space that those first followers of Jesus, those women and those men, Mary, Mary, Salome, and the rest, uh, Peter, James, you know, uh, they were living in anger and you know and fear and grief and hopelessness i mean that they were living in all of that and the i i I did try to not simply say surprise christ is risen he is risen indeed okay everybody close the book the end um the the image that i felt the spirit give to me was the image of there's a difference, a distinction, if you will, between a wound and a scar. Mm. And the idea that Jesus in the cave of resurrection transforms our wounds into scars. I have several little scars on my body, two on my knees, and they, the scars tell a story. A wound, not as much, because a wound's still not healed. And this is the, I think this is the beauty of the sanctifying journey for the follower of Jesus is that uh, I may walk in some victory and some testimony about overcoming anger. Uh, Me and that son who I had my hand around his throat have a splendid relationship today. Amen. To God be the glory. I mean, splendid. It, it brings me to tears. Yes. And that's only God. He transformed our wounds into our scars. But here's what I know. That sucker could turn on a dime on, on, by something he does or something that I do. And I'm back in the cave of anger again. And so what I love about the cave of resurrection is that it's not punctilier. It's not just a one and done thing. It's not you just walk through the cave of resurrection and all of a sudden Jesus turns all your wounds into his scars and they become a testimony, you know. Yes, but because um, tomorrow you're going to go to work and your boss is going to give you a pink notice. Or tomorrow evening you're going to come home from work and your spouse of 25 years is going to say, I don't love you anymore. Or you're going to find a dirty little secret about one of your children. Or 
you know, and the list goes on and on and on. And so what I love about the cave of resurrection is its fluidity, its, its capacity to morph to the context where we find ourselves. And it offers hope, you know, not magic, because it isn't magic in the way that Jesus transforms our wounds and the scars. Often it requires some, often it requires much of us, um, much, much of us. Um, the, you know, my therapy hasn't been cheap over the decades. Um, um, my time with my spiritual director, Laura, um, is, is, is invaluable time. I mean, but it's time that I take and I pay and I invest, um, and so those are the pieces, my time with my covenant group uh, twice a year for three days where we block out and hold to um, a, sa a sacred space for us to do life together richly and deeply for more than 32 years now. Um, each of those, each of those is a requirement of me. It's not magic. Um, faith is not magic. <laughs> uh, it's faith. Um, and so we walk by faith, which means it requires something of me. No, I mean, I think everything you just said there was so important because um, uh, you, you're talking about creating a, a containers like um, in, uh, for your life and even resurrection. You know, as we walk through, you know, we're recording this during Lent here now. And so we're uh, in that season of focusing on the cross. And um, yeah, the resurrection isn't like some magic trick. It's not a pill you take. It doesn't make everything all right instantly. Um, it's, but it declares uh, God's victory. So I just, I really love everything you just said and articulated. And yeah. how, how has your, because you know, you're known for the recovery work that you've, that you do through Grace Church, and that's been a big part of your own journey. How has your work with mm -hmm. recovery actually impacted that? Because I think I'm hearing some themes that have drawn out of that, but I don't want to assume, yeah. and I'm, I don't want to exegete into what I'm hearing if I'm missing that. So like, how has that impacted yeah. what you just said and how you understand the resurrection and how, yeah, so these are substantial victories, but not necessarily finished victories. Yeah, well, I mean, here's a piece I would I would argue, and uh, you can tell me whether I'm crazy or not, but I would argue that uh, the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is the finest disciple-making process on the planet. Um, I've seen more life transformation through people who work the program than through anything else I've seen in the life of the church that I've been privileged to serve for three decades. Yeah, I love that. Um, and this may be oversimplifying it, so give me some grace here, Brian, but I think that, I think I'm right on this. Um, steps one, two, and three, uh, admitted I'm powerless, acknowledge that God can fix me, and then humbly surrender. Uh, gets me right with God. It gets me on the path to being right with God. And then doing a spiritual inventory, sharing it with God, myself, and others. And then doing the work of naming my defects of character and then asking God to, to remove them. Um, 
gets me on the path to being right with myself, my own inner world, to dealing with the, the guilt, the shame, the remorse, all of that sort of stuff that's a part of that. And then uh, steps eight and nine, where I make the list of those that I've harmed and be willing to uh, make amends and then actually do the amends in, in step nine, uh, eight and nine, um, puts me on the path to being right with others. So I've gotten right with God. I mean, I, I argue that evangelical Christianity has gotten the order wrong. It, it's, you know, it's the joy choir, Jesus, others, and then yourself, but you never have anything left over for yourself. It's Jesus, yourself, and then others. And the order matters. And the 12 steps gets it right. I get right with God. I deal with the garbage on the inside of me. And then I, then, then I have some capacity to look those that I've harmed in the eye and seek amends. And then the rest of the steps, it seemed to me, are those, are those ongoing steps that keep me right with God and myself and others. They're the discipline steps. They're the, and that includes that 12th step of the evangelism step, if you will, of giving it away. And again, my experience has been that followers of Jesus, that um, whether they, you know, I get in trouble with some of my 12 steppers um, because I don't believe you can only find recovery in the rooms of AA. Um, I think you can find recovery principles um, in, in many rooms, in many churches, and in many other places that where there isn't uh, a cross. Uh, and so... Um, what matters is the principles. Uh, I always say that I came in the back door of recovery. Uh, while I was a student at Asbury Theological Seminary, my therapist that uh, I went to see, my very first therapist, uh, really my second therapist, I, I went to see somebody at the seminary for a few sessions. And then um, the Board of Ordained Ministry required that I went to see uh, one of their certified therapists uh, approved by them. And I went to see this guy for the next two and a half years. And to come to find out, he, he was in recovery from sexual addiction. And basically, he just walked me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I lovingly tell my, my friends when I'm giving my testimony or my lead, I said, I was spending $50 a session as a poor seminary student, could have gotten it for a buck a meeting at the, at the corner AA meeting. So I'm a big believer in AA and, and the steps of AA, but it, it, it is a, it's a path um, that the founders beautifully mined out of the pages of the New Testament and particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And so um, I find it to be profoundly um, holistic, uh, profoundly um, sanctifying in its, in its breadth and depth, um, and yet simple. There's not one of the steps that any human with some basic capacities, we, we, now we know that there are some that their agency is diminished um, by choices of their own or others. Mm -hmm. But in general, my experience is that most of us have enough personal agency to engage in these steps and that there's not one of them that you look at and go, they're asking me to chop off my right arm. No, 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 they're not. 
No, they're not. They're saying, have the courage. My observation, uh, doing recovery ministries for 23 years here at Grace Church, is that a lot of people do what we call the one, two, three step shuffle. Um, they like getting right with God. And so they're always down at the altar praying. And uh, But they won't get in the therapist's office or they won't get a sponsor to help them work through the fourth step. Um, and they're as sick as their secrets because we're only as sick as our secrets. And um, so recovery doesn't, um, it, it, it doesn't allow you uh, to hide. Um, I was interviewed a decade or so ago um, about our recovery ministry. And they said, so what percentage of your people that work the steps don't relapse? I said, 100%. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, no, no, you, what was the question? What percentage of people that work the steps don't relapse? And the answer to that is 100%. Because if you work the steps, the program works. That's remarkable. That's, not, yeah, that's good. So connecting that back to your, to your, to your book. Um, and, I, and I don't, I don't, I haven't been able to read, finish the whole book. So you made a quote of this. One of my favorite quotes is the cave you're afraid to enter holds the treasure that you keep. I don't know if that showed up in your book. That's from Joseph King. No, but I, I, yeah. So brother uh, to a dragon. Yeah. yeah. yeah no, I love that, that idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so you, you know, so you have that. Um, I mean, so you have cave, so it's like, you know, it'd be easy. Like I'm trying to think I could probably read you know i'm just looking at yours everybody will read the cave of resurrection because that's what we all want to always <laughs> of course i'll read the one that uh um but what 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 does it take which you found and even and you were had the privilege of working with all kinds of folks that have um that have owned owned their stuff and done the work what, what does it really take to have the guts to name the cave that you're actually struggling in and then you know like let's just say they have your book and like let's just say that um well, uh, let's just say I'm really fearful or whatever is the name, the, the second cave you have in the book. Like, what's it take to actually name it, own it? Yeah. Sit in the cave for a while and well, then I, I, bring us back out. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, one, one of the things that I, I, I try to make clear, particularly towards the end of the book, is that this is, again, this is not a one and done process. This is, you know, this is um, uh, life is messier than that. It's ebbs and flows and, and, and moments of profound victory and, and then moments of utter defeat. Um, I, one of my favorite lines in, I think it's Rocky II, mm. uh, when Clubber Lane is interviewed and they ask him his prediction for the fight and he leans way in and he goes, pain. That's a great movie. <laughs> Not a great movie. And I, and I do think, Brian, I, I, I do think C.S. Lewis had it right. It is pain that um, ushers us to the cave. Now, we can deny the pain. We can anesthetize the pain. Um, we can try to dodge the pain. Um, but I do think eventually, you know, what, one of the things that, I, I love the matter-of-factness, particularly about drugs and alcohol when it comes to recovery. And so when we're doing these interventions and the interventionist says, um, your life only leads to one of three places. 
It either leads to the rooms of recovery, to the jail, or to the morgue. It's the only place it leads to. And, uh, and I've seen that to be true. I tell the story of a dear friend uh, who um, was lost in the cave of fear. And I would take him to meetings and he'd have spurts of sobriety followed by weeks and months of addictions. And we found his dead body in a, in a warehouse. Mm-hmm. And he had everything, a beautiful wife, a beautiful daughter. He had more money than he knew what to do with a great business, dear friends that loved him. And the last time I saw him, he walked into my house and he screamed and cursed me and, and then ran off. And then a few weeks later, I found, we found him dead. And um, rooms of recovery, the jail or the morgue. And sadly, um, he chose the, the morgue. And um, so there is a, there is a uh, urgency about this. Um, and, and there isn't enough simply say a prayer to get out of this thing. I believe in prayer. Um, I read everything that you write about prayer, Brian. Um, it, it, it's it's not that at all. It's saying it's saying there there have to be. You use the word containers that we that become a part a rhythm of our lives. I, I love that Dallas Willard phrase that where he says grace is is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And um, and it's that effort side. Because a lot of people want Jesus to be magic. And he's not magic. He's just not magic. I just returned from Israel a few days ago. And, you know, walking around Tiberias and Capernaum and in the desert and, and even the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus walked with ordinary people through the ordinary th- stuff of life. Mm-hmm. And he still does. He still, he really, really still does. Wow, this is uh, so good. I, th- I think I'm going to invite you to come back on another episode. We can jump into some more of this stuff because I've absolutely loved it. I want to be fair to your time here too. But I mean, I, th- I think I love the, uh, again, find in, in the subtitles now is finding God in dark places. Yeah. So that was a shift from uh, what, what, I, what, I'd, what, I'd, what I'd originally had seen on there. I love that everybody needs some cave time. And so uh, this has been uh, a really powerful uh, conversation. And I'm, uh, I'm just grateful for uh, really how deep you've just even gotten here at the end and obviously it's super sorry about your friend and you know part of the work that we do involves uh sadness uh sometimes yeah. um yeah but we 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 hold space anyway in those places and and uh yeah yeah so thanks yeah. for being that uh, vulnerable too and uh yeah I, I feel it in my heart right there just yeah. even talking about that that friend of yours so wow thank you bro. um uh yeah let me just ask a couple kind of closing questions because sure. um i mean this i mean i think we've whetted everybody's appetite like because uh, everybody does need uh 
cave time and and the good news is you can find god in in those spaces uh yeah that's so good um talk a little bit i mean it just i mean briefly here um like you've been well i've heard you mention i was gonna ask you about your rhythms for life or your container you've mentioned you have a a discipleship group uh you've you've have a therapist you have a spiritual director you do the soap bible study are there other aspects that you kind of a typical day that really feels like it fuels your soul yeah there are really uh, there's a practice i do before i do the soap uh piece uh that uh I, I I caught on a, like a three minute video from a handsome guy uh, at Asbury, uh, Dr. Brian Russell. Oh. It was a video you probably maybe forgotten about it, but it was right near the beginning of the new year. And this had to have been five to seven years ago. And I just picked it up on Twitter feed and it changed my life. Um, uh, I write out five things I'm grateful for because gratitude changes Actually, our neuroplasticity in our brains, research around gratitude is remarkable. Um, Thus, the invitation to give thanks in all things. Uh, So I write out five things. And I try to be robust in not just like I'm thankful for that piece of chicken. I want to describe the taste of the chicken and the person that cooked it. So I want my Thanksgiving to be robust. So I write out five things every day I'm grateful for. Write out one thing that's bothering me and what I've discovered, and I I don't know that you mentioned this, but what I've discovered is that in many ways, if I name it early in the morning, it doesn't Shanghai me later in the afternoon. And it is the hardest of the three little, we call it around our church, 512, the 512 exercise. Um, You know, and so I have to do this, you know, I have to kind of Okay, what what what's what's because I do live a North American charmed life in a gated community, you know, with a swimming pool. So I have to kind of go, what is it that really is bothering me? And it's often an emotion attached to some circumstance in life, uh, maybe something that's one of the caves. Um, but I but what I find is that it defangs the snake early in the morning so that I don't get surprised by it later in the day. So Five things I'm grateful for. One thing uh, that I'm thankful for. And then two things to make the day a great day. And that uh, just two things that are going to make the day, you know, sometimes it's finishing a task. Hey, get this chapter written. It'll make your editor happy and you'll sleep better. Um, It's um, uh, often here lately um, because I'm in a I'm in this kind of liminal space. It's been walk slowly. Mm. Just walk slowly. Don't, I've rushed so much in my life. And so just walk slowly. So that's at the beginning of the day. And the end of the day, I kind of have my own version of examine. Uh, not that it's unique, but uh, three questions I ask myself uh, before I go to bed. Um, uh, what can I celebrate? Um, what can I confess? And what can I change? And so I use those uh, as reflection questions. And sometimes it requires getting up out of bed and sending an email or jotting a note down to do something in the morning, that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, often I'll, I'll find sinews from early morning gratitude to early late evening celebrations or even confessions. Uh, 
if I don't pay attention to that one thing, it could be that that's what I confess late in the day. So I've found that life then gets lived between those two moments um, of early morning of the one and, and, and late afternoon of the other. I would say that um, I have uh, uh, Todd Bolsinger's book, Tempered Resilience, uh, was very helpful for me in my doctoral dissertation work. And um, he has this, uh, this quote that, um, you know, we just, we all have these quotes that become uh, our, our kind of life to us. And, and for me, uh, he has this quote, uh, and I wish I could find it. Um, it he has this quote where he, um, he says that, um, uh, give me one second and I'll find it here for you. Yeah, oh, I can't find it. I just can't find it. Uh, but he says to, to live our lives as spiritual leaders without the ongoing input from spiritual directors, mentors, coaches, therapists, and he has a fifth one he names. He calls it leadership malpractice. It's good. And um, one of my journeys, Brian, I think you would appreciate this is um, uh, I, I used to read five leadership books for every one inner world book. And now I read 10 inner world books for every one leadership book that I read. But I still believe leadership matters. And um, uh, I know that for me, I have a leadership coach that helps me get better at the art of leading. I have a spiritual director that helps me in my walk, in my walk with God, in my experience and encounter with God. Um, um, she and I've been, we've spent over a year in this journey of diminishment. And what does it mean to move from being a spiritual leader to a spiritual sage? Mm. And it's a journey that I'm on. It's something I want to write about. And I know that's a question that you had asked. Uh, I want to write about the journey. I, I think Richard Rohr is right. If we listen to our soul, we spend the first half of our life building the cup and filling it. And if we listen, we empty it. And I just see so many who do what we do, who handle the holy things their entire life, and they can never put it down. Mm. And yet Leviticus said you can only serve in the inner court handling the holy things where they did the sacrifices in the inner court from 25 to 50. And could it be that they knew that the soul could only manage 25 years of holding the holy things? And then after a while, you can't self-differentiate between yourself and the holy things. Uh, there's something there, my friend. <laughs> and that's what I want to write about is how do we self-differentiate between ourselves in this last journey of, of our ministry? Because you and I can name in our tribe uh, mostly men who have a hard time letting go of the holy things. Wow. And, and um, so I think it's a kenosis journey. It's a hupatasso journey. It's a self-emptying journey. So, um, yeah. So spiritual director, a therapist um, is on redial. I'm not seeing her right this moment, um, but I will engage with her the closer I get to retirement date. Because I do know as much as I think I'm self-differentiated from the church, um, my tears tell me that 
at times I'm not as self-differentiated as I think. So. Yeah, I love it. One of my convictions I came to a long time ago is I either I either have a coach that I meet with monthly or I have a therapist, and sometimes I actually have both. And so that's yeah. uh, that's been a yeah. just a wonderful yeah. uh, discipline. That was awesome. And I think I heard you know, people are interested in that Richard Rohr book. That's that's falling upwards. I think that's yes. the book that you're yeah. kind of describing. Yeah. It's one of my favorite books, also. So I'll put uh, the Bolsinger book and um, the Rohr yeah. book in there. If, if you were going to pick. And this is the impossible question since sure. you read so much, but if, if you're just going to pick two or three books outside of the Bible that come to mind as just being really helpful for you spiritually over the course of your life, or maybe it's even recently, what what would uh, what would a couple of titles be? Yeah, I, I, I did thought about this because you sent that to me ahead of time. I, uh, a Work of Heart by Reggie McNeil on how God shapes the hearts of spiritual leaders. Uh, it is a go-to. I was reading it uh, in Israel. And uh, I need to get back to it. Um, uh, I love the soul keeping with the videos from Ortberg. Um, it, it's kind of, it's 101 of the soul, but I, I love it. Uh, I'm really reading a lot of uh, uh, early desert fathers and mothers right now. And Nowen, I'm reading a lot of Nowen. Um, I, I, now, don't tell anybody, I'm not becoming a contemplative, but I'm way too activistic for that. But I'm becoming a contemplative informed activist where I, there was not any in, informing of my activism for so much of my years in the inner court, you know. Uh, uh, and I, I don't have regret about it. I think it, it's the journey. Yeah. It's the journey. But uh, yeah. I, I am, I am uh, one of the mantras that I, I try to live by is I, I follow a rabbi who changed the world at three miles an hour. So, amen. So, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tease you back a little bit about the contemplative stuff. You know, even Richard Rohr, his uh, center, you might, you probably know this, but it's called the Center for Contemplation and Action, and, right? And yeah. uh, in the in the early in the a lot of, in a lot of the folks, they always played off the Mary Martha stuff, and they said you had to be both of them. So. Uh, yeah, there's something there. So, well, praise the Lord. You sound like a contemplative to me just from describing your container, but it's uh, but you're a, you're a, uh, in the world monk or whatever yeah, well, in your own way. Yeah. So that's so good. Uh, yeah. I just got to say, uh, my heart is, uh, strangely warmed. It doesn't always, when I do these things, I just love this. So, um, I just want to thank you for, I mean, just, we just felt like I just got to record for an hour already. And so, uh, so rich. And so I will invite you back if, if you're willing and absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Before you go, um, you know, well, tell folks where they can find your book, where they sure. can find out about you. And if you're already doing some coaching, um, talk about how folks, because yeah. I mean, I, it's like, geez, I feel like signing up. But, you know, so I'm sure somebody's listening. It's like, I'd love to work with this guy. So if you're doing that already, share a little bit about um, sure. how folks can connect sure. with you. So uh, everything's pretty uh, simple and rudimentary. So don't, don't, you won't be overwhelmed. Uh, I do have a new little website. Uh, simply georgeacevito.com uh, for simplicity. And uh, in it, um, there's a space where folks can apply because um, I can't do everybody uh, for a monthly coaching, that sort of deal. And I'm working through Spiritual Leadership Incorporated so that I have accountability and all those kinds of pieces and I'm not just out there by myself. Um, it also has a space for uh, all the books that I've written 
and uh, as well as another space for uh, if you want to invite me to come speak at your church or at a conference, that sort of deal. Um, my, my schedule is amazingly open right now. So um, I'd, I'd be glad to do that. Um, particularly folks might be preaching this as a series and would like for me to come in and do that. I'd be, be honored to do that. So they can fill that out there. Um, and it, uh, you can contact me through the website there. It's george at georgeacevito.com. Okay, great. Well, well, George, uh, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. You know, if, uh, if we got to know each other here and there over the years, and um, and but this was just a real treat for me. So, and I and I just want to thank you. Not that you need to uh, necessarily thank just for me, but I'm I'm always grateful for uh, people that uh, you know show up, have done the work, love Jesus, and just want to bless and serve people. And I just sense that uh, you know that that in your own heart. So, thank you for your faithfulness to the kingdom and the work that you've done over. Uh, multiple decades now so thanks for being my guest and thank you for what you've done for jesus yeah and thank you for all you do too brian thanks and uh friends everyone who's uh listened all the way here to the end grateful for you and until next time uh, live by faith be known by love and be a voice of hope to others amen <laughs>